Could be in Romans chapter 8 this morning. If you have a Bible with you and you would turn there, that'd be great. I'm going to catch up on a couple details before we jump into some prayer time, before we get into Romans 8. Um, this coming weekend, next weekend, is a baptism weekend here at New Hope, and if you haven't been baptized yet and you're a follower of Christ, we would really encourage you to participate in that. Um, Jesus actually made that a command. That, that was a, not an optional thing. He called that an obedience issue, right, New Hope? So we do that out of obedience, but it's also an incredible witness to people that we would invite to watch, and it causes them to have questions about what, what is that about, why are you doing that? So uh, baptism weekend next weekend, and if you're uh, able to participate in that, you haven't been baptized yet, um, would encourage you to contact Gary Post this week or myself or Kyle and be happy to talk with you about what's the, the details behind that. And here's the second thing. Um, in the auditorium this morning in various locations are some chairs that the architect has specified for the new auditorium. And we would love for you to try those out while you're here. And you would be a huge help to us if you would do that. So there's one right up here and it's got a C on it. And there's two in the back and one has an A and one has a B on it. And so there's a clipboard back there. If you would try out one of those chairs while you're here, that would be great. And sit in it and then write down your choice on the clipboard, which one that you think feels most comfortable. You're not selecting the fabric this morning. That, that, that's not the choice. This is the comfort issue. So what feels good as you put your backside down on that chair that might keep you awake enough that you don't fall asleep when I teach, but... You like it and say, I could sit in that. That feels really good. So take a few minutes, if you would, maybe hang around after the service and try one of those out. Or if you feel like you'd love to come and sit closer to the pastor, somebody could come sit there this morning and enjoy that seat. No, no takers, right? Okay, all right. <laughs> Let me pray with you and then we'll step into this passage. Father, I thank you for what we're about to look at and the way that you're gonna remind us that you never let us go. We just got to declare that in song and you're about to show us that in this passage that you've got us and we wanna lean into that promise. We want to walk out of here today a little taller and, and with a, a boldness and, and encouragement. So Father, I pray for both of those things that we would be encouraged and that we would walk a little taller, that we would speak more boldly of what we know to be true so, Father, use this to speak to our hearts. For those who are maybe not yet in relationship with you yet, God, I pray that you would open up their heart and that this would cause them to want to be in relationship with you, that they would become a Christ follower. And for those that are Christ followers this morning, God, do what you do through your word and, and cause us to have these thoughts that understand your calling upon us. We pray for that right now, that you would speak through your word, in Jesus' name, amen. So there's this song that's been stuck in my head all week long, and I thought it was only fair to share the stick with you, so maybe it would stick in your head. And it's, it's an old hymn. I shared it with Michael earlier in the week, and it's, it's not one that's real familiar to people because it dates back to the 1800s. Uh, but there's this uh, choir of millennials, guy, young guys who are in Europe, and they formed the Westminster Choir. And I found on YouTube um, a sample of them singing this particular song. 
And what I want you to hear is what's going on behind the song. I'll explain that after they sing. I'm just going to play a little bit of it for you. And this particular song is um, maybe one you haven't heard in 40 years. I don't know how old you are. Um, it's called, Oh, Love That Will Not Let Me Go. And these guys do it a cappella. And just hear a little bit of a clip of what they do. Can I get an amen? amen. Uh, this guy's nailed it. The background on that song is equally as powerful as the statement. Oh, love that will not let me go is essentially what Paul's driving towards in Romans chapter 8. So just hear why the author of that song wrote that song. He was a guy in his 20s. And, and these guys who are in their 20s singing that song in that cathedral in Germany um, were obviously overcome with emotion because they understood the background on it. So this guy had been in a, a long-term relationship with a girl, and he was moving towards marriage. And as they got closer to their wedding date, she dumped him. And he realized that the love that he thought that he had here on earth was temporal. And he sat down, and he was in the midst of deep depression, and for months this went on, and his loss was so profound, he started writing about a love that would never let him go the love of Jesus, the one that will never abandon you. And so that's where that song comes from, a love that will never let me go. So you feel this, the emotion behind those guys singing that song, and you feel the emotion of Romans chapter 8 when you see Paul writing in the way that he did. Because before you is the very reason why people love Romans chapter 8. And the backdrop to what you're about to look at is this amazing statement that he made in verse 1. I'm going to ask you to think back to verse 1. We were there in the month of September, if you can imagine. Romans chapter 8 and verse 1, and it says this. You'll see it on the screen. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. That's an amazing statement. That in itself could be a whole chapter. And now Paul closes this amazing chapter with a crescendo. He plays almost on a musical theme as you see these verses unfold. Many theologians have looked at verses 31 through 34 and feel like perhaps Paul was leaning into the book of Psalms because of the poetic nature of it. It, 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 it just increases to an ever-expanding declaration of God's grace and His mercy. And before we get to those verses in verses 31 through 34, I, I want you to just think back to September. Maybe you weren't here at that time when we were in Romans chapter 8, verse 1, but I know you know this if you're a church person. If you're not, I'm going to catch you up really quickly on what it's saying. What you're looking at in that verse on the screen, it's addressing a really ancient problem. Job, one of the oldest individuals to walk this planet, a very early man, wrote, how can a man be right with God? This ancient problem is that we all have sin on us, and how do a people covered with sin stand before a holy God? And every world religion is a response to that question. Can you stand before God one day and not have any fear that you can stand before Him and not be thrown out and be condemned? Can you stand before God and be acceptable? Well, in our journey, especially in Romans chapter 8 since September, we've discovered that every single world religion except Christianity focuses on what man tries to do. 
the things that we could do to make ourselves better. But the Bible's really, really clear. God's answer is very clear, and you see it on the screen in Romans 8.1. There is now no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. So if you're figuring out how to I get to stand before God one day, that's it right there. You've got to be in Christ Jesus. Let me just remind you of two other verses we looked at. Verse 2, look with me. Christ Jesus has set you free from the law, from the law of sin and death. You don't need anything else. Verse 3, for what the law could not do, God did, sending his own son. If you're new to church, you want to hear this really clear. What characterizes Christianity is the answer focuses on what God has done, the action of God, not on what you do. Justification before God doesn't take place because humans finally figured it out, but rather because of what God does through Jesus, because you and I, we can't overcome sin. It's not possible. Only Jesus can do that. So Paul boldly says, therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And whether you're new to church or you've been going to church since you were a baby, this is a really important passage for, you, passage for you to remember because we all hear voices of accusation. Sometimes accusation comes at you from your neighbors, sometimes from your social circle, sometimes from your coworkers. Especially it comes from Satan. And, and it sounds like this, you don't really feel forgiven, do you? That thing you did, if anybody knew about that, do you know what they would think of you? That's what it sounds like. Satan brings accusation all the time. But you can say out loud, because of what Jesus did for you, I am not condemned. Would you like to say that? Let's do it on three. One, two, three. I am not condemned. Doesn't that feel good to say that? I am not condemned. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. That's why you hear Paul's echoing voice all the way through the book of Romans. I am not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's the power of God unto salvation for those who believe. So he now closes this amazing chapter with this song of security to back up all of his statements. There's this crescendo that begins to build, and it keeps mounting ever higher with poetic repose to us. Look with me at verse 31. It says it this way. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who is against us? He who did not spare his own son but delivered him over for us all, how will he not also with him freely give us all things? Who will bring a charge against God's elect? God is the one who justifies. Who is the one who condemns? Christ Jesus is he who died, yes, rather, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who also intercedes for us. That's the part we're going to look at this morning, but let's finish it out because next week we're going to look at verse 35. Who will separate us from the love of Christ? Will tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? Just as it is written... For your sake, we are being put to death all day long. We were considered as sheep to be slaughtered. But in all these things, we overwhelmingly conquer through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Wow. If you're new to church, the reason they're saying amen, they're just saying it's true. It's true. That's what amen means. It's truth. 
beautiful stuff. So Paul says, what then shall we say to these things? If God's for us, who's against us? These things that he's talking about here, he's referring to the issues that we dealt with all the way through chapter 8. I'm not going to rehearse them all for you, but essentially he's talking about the doctrine of atonement and the security of those who believe. And why is that important to you to be reminded of that this morning? Because even after coming to faith in Jesus, many people still have doubts. Like, does he really have me? Am I really saved? How do I know that this is really true? Even after coming to Jesus for new life, many people still have doubts. So you find God addressing a really hard question. Is it true that believers are completely saved? Or do they have to do more? Is there something more they've got to do? So Paul begins with this first retort, verse 31. If God is for you, who's against you? Now, in the English language, when you use the word if, it sounds like, well, maybe there's a possibility that it's not. But in the structure of the Greek language, the way the word if is actually used in a sentence, it's actually talking about something that's a fulfilled condition, not a mere possibility. So if you have your Bible open and you don't mind writing in it, you might even want to write the word because. Because God is for us. Who could be against us? Paul's point is really obvious here. If anyone could take your salvation away, they'd have to be greater than God because he's the giver and he's the sustainer of everything that you have. So Paul's asking this question, New Hope. Is anyone stronger than God? Is anyone stronger than God, New Hope? No. So then logically, you'd have to say, if no one's stronger than God, who could possibly take away your position? My position, what's my position? That you're not condemned. Therefore, there is now no condemnation. So your position is that you're not condemned. See, he's just leaning back into the Psalms. You can see the way that he's writing. Look at what David said in Psalm 27.1. The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the defense of my life. Whom shall I dread? So when Paul's asking this question, who can be against us? It doesn't mean that there's no adversaries in your life. It doesn't mean that there's no opponents. He means if God's for you, it doesn't matter who's against you. Look with me just to be reminded of who you follow and who you serve, church. Look at Isaiah 40, 26. Lift up your eyes on high and see who has created these stars, the one who leads forth their host by number. He calls them all by name. Because of the greatness of his might and the strength of his power, not one of them is missing. That's an amazing God. See, I'll just say this in a really old-fashioned biblical way. There is no adversary who can vanquish you when you're held by a God like that. A God who knows the stars by name and doesn't only know them, he created them. So in the context of what Paul's talking about here, let's just ask this question. Can anyone rob you of your salvation, New Hope? No. But let's take it a step further. Can anyone rob you of the joy of your salvation? Hmm. Yeah. And they will try. They will try to take away your joy. 
and will come at you from all different angles. Some, some will try to make you think you're not saved unless you do certain things. And if you haven't faced it yet, you absolutely will. Somewhere along the way, someone is going to come to you and they're going to insist, you can't claim heaven unless you do blank. And then they usually have a very long list by which they fill the blank in with. They did it in Paul's day. They insisted that they follow the Mosaic law. And unless they followed the Mosaic law, they weren't really saved. Well, that's false teaching. And false teaching will mess you up. But false teaching cannot prevent salvation. But what it can do is it can easily stress a believer. It can take your joy. It can rob you of your joy. And equally, it'll confuse a non-believer. It'll cause someone who's not yet in Christ to say, what is it with all this stuff I've got to do? So just check this. Check yourself on this thought. If you are not able by your own effort to save yourself in the first place, how could it be that by your own effort you could undo the grace that's been given to you? How could you do that? So Paul goes on to say in verse 32, he who did not spare his own son but delivered him over for us all, how will he not also with him freely give us all things? I want you to notice this argument that's going on. It goes from greater to lesser, the way that Paul is playing it out. He's saying, if when you were lost in sin, God's already done the greater thing, if he's already given up the son, now that you're his, how will he not do the lesser thing? Just track this. There is no way any person on this planet could ever work hard enough or do enough good things to make themselves acceptable to God. There's no way you can restore the relationship. You can't do it apart from Jesus. So rather than let us perish, God sends the one and only Son of God. And God the Father delivers up God the Son. Now just check yourself on this. Jesus is worth more than all the angels of heaven. He's worth more than all the glory of heaven. He's the creator of all that is, was, and ever will be. He's worth far more than anything. And yet God delivers up God the Son for you. God did that, according to verse 32. He delivered him up for us all. God gave up God. There's a really old dead theologian that uh, I like his writings, but I haven't shared him with you before. His name is Octavius Winslow. 1860, he wrote this statement. You'll see it on the screen. Who delivered up Jesus to die? Not Judas for money, not Pilate for fear, not the Jews for envy, but the Father for love. So if you've got somebody in your life that has not yet received Jesus as their Savior, maybe that's you. Maybe you're not yet there. If you have not yet received salvation, that individual doesn't owe it to the lack of mercy on God's part. He took the most valuable and offered it on a cross because he's not willing that any of us would perish. 
And there is such capacity in Jesus that his death would provide forgiveness of sin for every inhabitant of this planet. Check it, everyone who ever walked, talked, or breathed. This is available to every single person if they would only receive it. Like, how great is our God? Oh, you guys, come on. How great is our God? Amazing for everyone who's ever been born if they would only receive it. Uh, here's an old author you really are familiar with. His name is Charles Simeon. In 1833, he said it this way. All are not alike benefited by this gift, but it was designed alike for all. You check what he's saying there. God offered it to everybody, but not everybody's going to accept it. So for us, he stood in my place. And the us, it's not universalism. He's not talking about the whole planet instantly just gets swept into eternity. He's talking about the us of whom we've been studying about in chapter 8, those who profess Jesus Christ. And for those us, for us, he freely gives us all things. Now, if to you freely gives all things means a new Mercedes... I want you to adjust your thinking because you're thinking too small. Bet you didn't think I was going to say that, did you? You are. You're, you're thinking too small because in God's economy, things, these all things he's talking about, it's not measured in silver and gold and Mercedes. That's not what he's referring to here. The true value he's talking about is your eternal soul. Look at the way that Jesus said it in Mark chapter 8. What in the world does it profit you if you gain every single dollar that all of Wall Street has, but you lose your own soul? What does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? So this is the Bible's way of saying if you had a parking garage filled with 1,000 Mercedes, it would not be as valuable as your soul. It's worth more than everything, the value of the whole planet. So if that's not what it's talking about, it's not talking about earthly wealth, what's it talking about? What does freely gives us all things mean? There's only one Greek word in your notes this morning. You're going to see it on the screen as well, and it's this word charizomai. And it's talking about something that's been delivered over. Now, charos is the word grace. Charizomai is the word of action, of giving grace. So God's imparting something here. You see, Paul's turning this. He's starting to talk about something eternal, freely giving. God is freely giving. God is gracious in his giving as well as God is gracious in his forgiving. See, it's a both and. God's gracious in giving, and he's gracious in forgiving. He does both. He freely gives, and he freely forgives. So the authors of Scripture can say things like 1 John 1, 9. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So you can put those two pieces together. You can see it. It's not just being forgiven. It's being cleansed also. It's a both and. He's doing both there. So God's unlimited forgiveness makes it impossible for you to out-sin God's forgiveness. You hearing that? 
You can't do that. It's impossible to sin yourself out of God's grace. Think back to the things you've done this last week, and it might be painful to do that right now. You think you've burned the bridge with God? I'm talking to both believers and non-believers. You think that what you've done has put you in the position where God will no longer deal with you. What you hear him saying very clearly is, if you belong to me in Jesus, I got you. You can't change that. I've got you. If you belong to me in Jesus, regardless of what you think you've done to burn the bridge. So Paul's point is this. How could it be that this God who shed his blood for your soul would toss out the very ones that he bought with his own blood? He's not going to do that. What power on earth could possibly rob God of the very ones he saved through the cross? Next verse, verse 33, who will bring a charge against God's elect? God is the one who justifies. Uh, In the ancient world, to bring a charge against someone, he's using a legal term here, to bring someone up on charges, to bring them before a court of law and make a legal accusation against them. But do you notice that he's writing it in the future tense? Who will bring a charge against God's elect? And if you actually study the original language, you see that he's pointing to something distant, something way distant, like judgment day distant. Who will in the future on judgment day bring a charge against God's elect? He's pointing to the final judgment here. So Paul's not denying the fact that you have adversaries in your life. So when he says, if God's for us, who's against us? It's not that you don't have adversaries, you have adversaries. He means there's no accusation that can possibly stand against you because the world brings accusations against you. You've got friends, you've got family members, you've got coworkers, people in your social circle, your neighborhood who accuse. Satan accuses. His name means the accuser. He is the adversary. But those accusations, according to God's word, they amount to nothing before the Lord because God is the one who justifies. See, it's not that the accusations that are made are always untrue. That I, that Mark Kring is not perfect yet, is all too painfully obvious. Oh, I heard people laugh at that. That you are not perfect yet is all too painfully obvious. We know that about ourselves because we know ourselves. But hear this, even when an accusation is true, it's not grounds for separation from this God who will not let you go. He won't do that because he paid for all your sin, past, present, future, whatever sinful thoughts going on in your head right now, whenever you can't control your thought life. Jesus said even your thought life condemns you. But whatever sin you committed in the past, whatever sin you committed this week, whatever sin you haven't committed yet, Jesus died for all of those. And even when the accusation is true, it's not grounds for separation because he's declared you are no longer condemned. There's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Even when we sin after we're saved, the Lord Jesus himself intercedes on your behalf. And so when Satan brings the accusations or others bring charges against you, this is what Paul's arguing for here. They won't stand. But there's a third entity that brings charges against you. 
It's not just Satan, and it's not just your social circle. And if we're really honest with ourselves, we'll identify it right away. We condemn ourselves, don't we? Our own heart knows us really well. Do you struggle to forgive yourself? Are you your own greatest accuser? We have seen the enemy, and he is us. You understand what I'm talking about? See, if we're honest, as we're looking at this, the reality is even our own heart condemns us. But Jesus is what matters in the end. And here's why this is really important. I have a verse I want to share with you, and I'm not going to put it on the screen. I wanted you to write it down. If you have your notes or your Bible, write it down in the back of your Bible. This is a really important passage if you condemn yourself. If you're struggling with your past failures and you can't get over them. 1 John chapter 3, don't look for it on the screen, just listen to me read this. We will know by this that we are of the truth and will assure our heart before him in whatever our heart condemns us. For God is greater than our heart. 1 John chapter 3 verse 19 and 20. God is greater than our heart. And my heart knows me. Your heart knows you. And perhaps you can't even forgive yourself. God says, I even have that. I got that as well. I know you because I built you. So that's why you find Paul coming into verse 34 with this ultimate statement. Who is the one who condemns? Well, sometimes it's Satan. And sometimes it's your social network. And sometimes it's you yourself. So he answers this way, Christ Jesus is he who died. Yes, rather, who was raised, who was at the right hand of God, who also intercedes for us. So I'm going to send you out the door with four realities. It's in your notes this morning. I want you to see them on the screen as well. These four realities of this eternal protection in Jesus that you have. There's the first one. I know many of you are believers already. You're thinking, I know this stuff, Mark. Well, you want to walk a little taller? You want to have a little skip in your step this morning? You pay attention to this. Jesus died for your sin. He took the full penalty of everything that you deserved. Your condemnation was transferred to him. I deserved it. Mark Kring deserved it. But because of Jesus forever, I am free. Hallelujah. Amen. Jesus was raised from the dead, number two. He's raised from the dead because he conquered death. The grave could not hold him. If you've always tried to figure that out, what's the purpose in that? Why, why does the Bible talk about Jesus being resurrected? Because he was resurrected. He can give eternal life to everyone who believes. See, his death paid the price, and his resurrection was proof that the price was paid. That's an easy way to remember it. His death paid the price. His resurrection was proof that the price was paid. Number three, Jesus is at the right hand of God. I want, I want to spend just a minute with you on this particular one. It's talking about the posture of sitting at the right hand of God. That's what Scripture describes, that Jesus has been seated next to God. And it's really talking about the finished work of Jesus, that he completed everything necessary to be done. So Philippians 2, 8, and 9 says things like this. He humbled himself even to the point of death, even to the point of death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him. 
and given him a name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus is king to the glory of God the Father. That's why that statement is made, because it's the finished work of Jesus. There's nothing more that needs to be done. Why does Paul play into this imagery of standing and seating and being next to the right arm of God. Well, the right hand of God is always known as the power position. Not talking about subordinate, but talking about being at the strength position of God the Father. Now, this is an important image for you. Because in the ancient temple, there were no seats. When the priest entered the temple, they always stood. They had to stand because the work of sacrifices was never done. It went on constantly. So the priest could never sit down, but yet we're told that Jesus takes a seat at the right hand of God. Why? Because his work is completely done. It's finished. There's no further work to do for your salvation. Jesus did it all. So if Jesus has set you free, you are free indeed. That's why Scripture makes that statement. Here's the fourth one. Jesus intercedes for us because those first three things are true. He's at the right hand of God, and he makes intercession for you without interruption. How long does he do that, Mark? Because he's doing it right now. Like I said, every thought that goes through your mind, every evil thought, every evil action, every sinful behavior, Jesus lives to continually make intercession for us according to Scripture. Hebrews chapter 7 says that. How long does he do that? Until... Every single believer makes it safe to heaven's shore. He just keeps doing it over and over and over. The accusations don't stand. I died for that sin. Listen to Hebrews 7.25. It's not going to be on the screen. Jesus is able to save forever those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. See, if you're grasping this morning what Jesus did on the cross... If you grasp what he did for you, then you realize you are safe. You're safe for eternity. Not only saved by his death, but preserved by his life. So on that last great day, that judgment day, Jesus stands as judge of all the earth. And whether you knew that or not, he's the one who will condemn He is the one who will decide who is condemned and who is not. And that one says, I've got you. So therefore, a new hope, I'm asking you this question. If he then is for you, how could you possibly be condemned? If God says, I got you, your inevitable response is like Paul in Romans 8.31. What shall we say to these things if God is for us who could be against us the God who causes all things to work together for good reminds us that we should walk out of here today skipping when's the last time you skipped men I skipped last night for the Saturday night service. I didn't do it very good, so I'm not going to repeat it. (laughs) Yeah, I don't want my wife talking to me about it after the service. (laughs) You should have a little bit of a spring in your step. What would skipping look like? Could you walk a little taller? 
or would it actually be jumping? <laughs> oh yeah, could you do that? Could you go in the parking lot today and actually skip when you leave? Or are you too proud for that? I'm not trying to put any conviction on you or anything. How about just walking into the office or into your workplace or into the classroom tomorrow with a smile on your face because you serve a God who will not let you go? Wow. Yeah, I agree. Praise God. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the encouragement that you give through your word. It's alive, it's active, it's sharp, and it does things, and you've done things this morning. I pray that you send us out with encouragement and with a skip in our step and make us bolder. God, make us bolder. We serve a God who will not let us go. And we praise you for that in the matchless name of the one who holds us for all eternity, the Lord Jesus Christ and all God's people said, amen. Have a great week, New Hope.